Hello and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a human-centred design practitioner based in Sydney, Australia. Before we get started, I always like to acknowledge the true custodians of the land where I sit whilst recording this podcast. And as I'm based in Sydney CBD, I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the land where we meet today and pay respect to their elders, both past and present. Greg Barnarda is a co-author of a very well-known book, and I wanted to say a design book, but it's not necessarily true and would be doing a disservice to it. The book is obviously called Value Proposition Design by Strategizer, something that most of us are probably familiar with. We caught up recently online, dialing Greg in from his home in Zurich to discuss a range of interesting topics, such as the 20th century mindset of businesses being exploitation versus the present and future mindset of organizations being innovation. We speak at length about the characteristics of each and what organizations who are still lingering in that exploitative phase can do to progress the organizations forward. We ask, is it possible to do both? What is innovation? And where does Greg see the role of design in both exploitative and innovative phases? Also joining on this episode was podcast friend and supporter Nick Coster from co-founder of BrainMates. I am really, really happy and I was really um, excited to get Greg on the podcast as I've been following Strategizer for years. So if I seem a little bit more excited in this episode, that's why. Anyway, let's jump straight into the call. All right. So today um, on the show, we have the brilliant Greg Bernarda, who some of you might know of being co-author of the excellent value proposition design book by Strategizer. This book has been adopted by many service designers and product managers and business designers around the world. So this will be familiar to some of the listeners today. Greg, delighted to have you on the This Is HCD podcast. Thanks, Jay. Happy to be here. Great. So let's kick off and tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Oh, it's a bit of a tricky thing. You know, I read somewhere that uh, if you struggle to describe what you're working on, it might mean that you're working on something interesting. So, you know, that's often how I feel. Just because, you know, I feel I'm interested in many things. In this whole space of innovation, which I work in, I feel touches on, on a lot of different things. But in a nutshell, where I come from is that I worked for eight years at the World Economic Forum, the Davos Forum in Switzerland. And, you know, there was always an idea that I kind of fell in love there, which is to bring people together from different walks of life around the table and, and come up with a, uh, with a different, better solution together. So I kind of took that idea with me and I ran with it and started my own practice. And that's kind of what I do with organizations. So, you know, it's innovation focused, but always with, you know, the idea of facilitating a group of people to come together and come up with their own, uh, their own solution. So how would you describe your skill set as a practitioner? Yeah, so it's, uh, when we talk about designing, I think what I design is I help design strategy. So, you know, understanding strategy is one part of the skill set. I also design a whole lot of um, experiences around learning and around inventing something new so you know that's a lot about understanding what gets people to to come up with new stuff to think about new ideas to you know bring ideas from different fields so that, so yeah i think that's kind of at the core of my of my skill set i think you know when you're working with a group of people there's a whole lot of um, diplomacy and of listening as well so i would kind of count that as part of my skill set Today's topic is an absolutely massive one, Greg. And we've been speaking back and forth on email for a number of months about this. 
And as most organizations still largely live in the 20th century, in a world where the key currency for success has been exploitation. But in the 21st century, the name of the game is innovation. And those are two very different capabilities. And exploitation is about excelling at executing and scaling products and services in a largely known environment. Innovation is about navigating the unknown, exploring possibilities and experimenting with new ways of creating value for people with ever-evolving needs. This sounds really close to what I do as a service designer and what Nick does as a product manager. And UXers that are also listening in, they do that as well. So I'm really excited to get into this. So tell us a little bit about where this came about and where this topic um, originated, Greg. You know, I think it's just spending a lot of time with organizations. You kind of feel that there's two different worlds out there, right? Um, I think a lot of people are talking about how you know everything is changing and there's just massive transformation happening around the world. And I, I think you have one group of people or organizations that are leading this in different ways. And you can include the startups, the kind of, you know, Silicon Valley type in there. Um, but not only, I think that, you know, there's a lot of things happening around the world that is just coming up with new stuff. And at the same time, you have traditional organizations, you know, who've been used to do business and to do what they do in a particular way. And I think there seems to be a little bit of, a, I guess, a, a difference in how these two groups of organizations operate. Traditional organizations, a bit more, you know, used to operating a business, exploiting a business, and these new players arriving and inventing something new. So being in the in this world of, of innovation. I think now we see that with time in the last five, ten years, we, I think, see that that divide is becoming even more pronounced because I think you could, you can kind of get by, you know, 10, 15 years ago with a, you know, a mindset where you were doing one thing and you were kind of executing on one business model. But more and more, we see that innovation is touching every aspect of business and society. And so can't quite hide from that. And so there's a challenge there of transforming the practices of the traditional traditional organizations into one that's, uh, I guess, more fit for the kind of world we live in. So I'm keen to hear about what your thoughts are around innovation in itself. So what, what is innovation and what are the behaviors that associated with innovation cultures? I think innovation is when new value hits the marketplace, right? So there's a lot of uh, invention going on, you know, in academia and also organizations, you know, R&D is about invention, but innovation is when we actually solve customer problems, create new value, etc. And to do that, I think you need to be, well, we, we like to talk about two kinds of processes, uh, you know, that you can need to embrace. One is a process of searching, of exploring, right? Because when you live in the world of innovation, typically you don't know or you have very limited certainty about what you're trying to do. You know, you don't really know what your customers want. Maybe you don't even know who they are in the first place. Don't know what technology can do. What is the right product, business model, etc. So you have to engage into a process of searching for the right business model, customer problem, value proposition, product services, etc. And then there is a process of, you know, experimentation. And I think that's when you, you go out with your idea, with your prototype, you go out in the world and you try and validate or invalidate that the assumptions that you put into your ideas, your business model, product services are the right ones. 
So, so I think these two things are, are essentially different from the whole world of, you know, exploitation, which is a lot more kind of execution focused, you know, focusing on making a big plan and then implementing. And Greg, I'm just curious, what do you think is the has been the, the big shift between that 20th century to the 21st century thinking? Is it purely the internet which has triggered that new opportunity or is there something else behind that switch between exploitation and innovation has been the key driver for business? Yeah, I think it's a lot of things changing at the same time. I think internet and technology in general is one thing, but, you know, customer preferences, I think people are changing a lot, right? There's just massive information and shift in, in behaviors going on all the time, partly because of the internet. The information that is available to consumers is now uh, spreading more quickly around the world. People are getting educated. They're making different choices. So I think customer preferences and behaviors is a big thing as well. And with that, you have, you know, something like regulation is changing. Every aspect of business, I think, is being accelerated and partly through technology, but just partly because, you know, more information is, is available to more people around the world. What are the signs of a business that's exploiting? Because I know in certain circumstances, you might have a business or a bank or a big organization that may believe that they're actually innovating, when in, in fact, they might still be in the exploitation phase. Yeah. So I think one sign is if you think you know, what you're doing, you, you know, you think you know, again, who your customers are, what their problems are, you know, what my product, my technology, etc. are. I think you might be kidding yourself because by definition, if you are in a space of innovation, there's huge amount of uncertainty. And so it's uncomfortable. So I think if, you know, that that's a sign, you know, being uncomfortable and being not sure about how, you know, you're going to create value and, and how your organization is going to stand in that new space is a sign that you are kind of dealing with this new world of innovation. If you, if things are too clear on paper and in how you relate to customers, etc., I think you're still a little bit in that old world. I totally agree, Greg, and um, I think it's just human nature when an organization is going through this process of change that it becomes a little bit uneasy and it's a little bit uncertain and um, tensions might be you know, getting high. And What have you done in the past that's worked well to try and support an organization through that process? I think it's about creating spaces for, you know, for innovation inside, inside organizations and trying something new. And, you know, because an organization, typically a traditional organization, you know, that has been in business for a long time, still needs to be good at exploitation, right? We're not asking organizations to leave everything behind and become a startup. That's obviously not what they're supposed to do, but what's going to work for them. You have a business, you need to make sure that it still runs, you know, mostly it's where you're still getting revenue. So you need to keep that exploitation side working. But at the same time, in parallel, I think it's important to start creating new spaces for innovation within your company. And there's different ways to do that, but I think one way that we're starting to see that that works better than others is if you can really separate the two things together. Uh, you know, have a set of people with a set of, you know, incentives, you know, a set of businesses that are focused on exploitation and, and, and in parallel to that have a different set of people, culture, incentives, processes that are geared towards innovation. 
Yeah. So do you believe that it's possible then to be both exploiting and innovating at the same time? I think it is, but that's why I say that I think it has to be different spaces inside organizations. And, and I think Physical different spaces, different spaces and different people as well. You know, I, I read this thing about the Apple Watch, you know, how Apple started with the Apple Watch and one can think whatever they want about the Apple Watch, but the process was interesting. You know, I think on the Apple campus, you had this new building that was supposed to house the Apple Watch uh, business and the employees of the normal Apple business were not allowed to go into that building because they didn't want the kind of corporate Apple mentality to infect the new startup, the new innovation space. But the employees of the Apple Watch were free to go to the rest of the buildings because they wanted to make sure that they can go and get the right technology, the right customer insights, and and uh, right designer, etc., and bring them over to the Apple Watch building. So I think it's a good metaphor for what needs to happen from an organizational design point of view. Yeah. Before um, we started the podcast, I was watching one of your webinars on the Strategizer website. And inside it, you described the story of the Michelin tires where they redesigned their business model. And it included lots of stuff that um, in the service design world that we we use the same sort of tools where you're solving customer problems and you're, um, you know, lots of gains and resolving pains. And this to me is a fantastic example of a human centered design process. In some instances, though, people listening might have uncovered similar needs within their organizations and presented it back to the business, but it didn't gain any resonance with the decision makers in the business. So what advice would you give to designers who are listening in today to help get those ideas adopted? Yeah, I think it's a tricky thing. You know, partly one answer to this is, I don't know if you can convince people. I think you, you know... Innovation depends a lot on people at the top, on the mindset they have, and if they have kind of made up their mind about innovation being important to the company or not. So it's a tricky thing to to convince people about that. But I think, at least with what we do, there's a couple of things that I can mention that have worked, I think, or or at least, you know, start kind of going in that direction. One, One thing is, you know, I think you have to meet people where they are, right? And I think the argument around for example, understanding customers, right? It's a very basic argument that is important in the innovation process. It's not the whole innovation process, but it's, it's an important one. And I think it's one that resonates with most people out there, even the ones that are not innovation-minded. And I think everywhere I've been, you know, you have this thing of, oh, yeah, we need to understand customers better. So starting with that, I think, is a good one. And the one other one that I feel has resonance more and more inside organization is the whole idea that, you know, there's, there's kind of this myth that innovation is very risky and very costly. And I think when you start employing the designer's toolbox and, you know, kind of what we say around this whole thing around, you know, exploration and experimentation, you, you realize that it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be risky and expensive. And in fact, your job as an innovator is to make that whole process it's to de-risk that process by doing the right thing and by making sure it goes faster and is not uh, ultimately very costly for an organization. So I think that argument, you know, kind of goes to the, to the core of, uh, of someone who's been kind of working in this exploitation wor- world, right, of, of making sure that it's not disrupting the business, it's not costly and so on and so forth. 
Yeah, I totally agree, Greg, that it's it's the role of the innovator to put the C-level on the board and the leadership team at ease during that process. It can be a hard time for them. So in your experience, what have you done that has worked well to put them at ease? What I do a lot is tell stories. And, you know, especially if you can understand what are the references of the leaders inside these particular organizations. You know, what are the heroes? Are people looking at to Apple, to Tesla, to maybe a local company, can you tell a story that resonates of how that, you know, hero organization has managed to shift and has managed to, to do what they do? So telling stories, I think, is important. And the, the other thing that I do is, is give people an experience of how easy it is to start uh, with, a, with a new business, you know, start with this whole process of innovation. So, you know, if I have two hours or even one hour with the leadership team, we can already get our hands a bit dirty in, in trying to play, you know, with this process of innovation. And people realize that it can be a fun process, doesn't have to be so complicated. And, you know, I think once they have this, this experience, it, it starts becoming something that they feel they can embrace a bit better. Okay, great. In a previous episode with Andy Pellane from Fjord and Simon McIntyre from the University of New South Wales, we discussed, is education broken? And I'm keen to hear your thoughts and uh, what you feel the connection is between the educational process and how organizations innovate. Is there a connection? What are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I think education is going to have to change massively in this. Uh, we've been talking about organizations entering this this phase of innovation and, and I think education has to be a big part of that. So a couple of things that I'm thinking about now. So one is, I think it's very important now to get in any educational system, if you start with school, to make sure that students start to kind of understand themselves and understand what their gifts are and what are they doing in this world, what are they kind of suited to do and less suited to do, etc. right? Because I think if you... If you see any innovator out there or entrepreneur out there or, or you know, successful people that have can led an innovation process, created something, they kind of have this relationship with themselves where they, they kind of understand what they're doing a bit. And uh, surfacing that in students at already an early young age, I think is going to be more and more important. It's going to be a necessity even, I think, for employees moving forward, especially if you think even now on, you know, of what's going to happen with, with robots, we're going to automate a lot of things. So, you know, having employees that are conscious of what their gifts are, what their creative process is, is going to be massively important. And the one other one I would mention, which I think gets mentioned often, is, is the whole thing of uh, being comfortable with experimentation, which includes failing and understanding that whole process of, of trying something and throwing something out there and seeing what works, what doesn't, progressing like that in an iterative way. I think that, that's an area that I find really interesting, uh, Greg, because I think it's one of the challenges between the almost the exploitation phase of a business and the innovation phase of a business, where in the exploitation phase, you're trying very hard to avoid waste. So a lot of the, the lean manufacturing principles were based around taking waste out. The Six Sigma quality control is all about removing waste. Yet when you look to innovation, in some respects, it's it's controlled waste. It's trying to find that experimentation, those big and small failures to until you find the thing that works effectively. How do you think you balance those two mindsets in an organisation 
And going back to Jerry's question, how that sort of plays back to the core of education to have both reduce waste and also embrace waste as part of the work we do. What, what you mentioned there, I really love because I think it goes to, um, you know, this whole debate again between what machines are going to do in the future and what human beings should do in the future is listening to someone who is saying that human beings should be comfortable with wasting time, right? And wasting kind of, or not being efficient, right? Efficient is going to be for machines. But as human beings, we're here to be, I think, creative and, you know, part of the creative process is trying, is not, you know, delivering something flawlessly and, and being extremely efficient at doing it. But part of it is exploration and being curious and trying things out. And so I think that, that should stay. And that should be a hallmark of what we do in companies that are focused on innovation. Mm. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And this is one of the other things that I noticed in one of your slides earlier was you're projecting 18 million jobs in 10 years. So, Greg, tell us, how are we going to do it? And what role do you feel design has to play in enabling this? Yeah, so I think you're referring to a story of uh, a Chinese story of, uh, of how... Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm referring to the, there was a story in Shanghai where the, I think it was, I can't remember the name of Tao Mao, is it? Tao Bao, the Chinese yeah. Tao Bao. So tell us a little bit about that, the 18 million jobs in 10 years. Yeah, so Tao Bao is actually a part of Alibaba. So now everybody knows Alibaba, but not a lot of people know outside of China that Tao Bao is, is actually the biggest part of the business of, of Alibaba. And when you know that Alibaba is bigger than Amazon and eBay combined in terms of their e-commerce space. It's just, yeah, it's, it's crazy. So Taobao is only in China. It doesn't, doesn't get mentioned a lot uh, outside of, of China. But indeed, they've created 18 million jobs, so directly and indirectly, uh, in 10 years. And they've just created the whole digital economy infrastructure that obviously didn't exist. You know, we're talking about back in early 2000 here. And I think this story is interesting because they started at the time when eBay was in China, right? And they, they basically drove eBay out of business. Yeah, eBay left China after, after Taobao started. And the CEO of, uh, of Alibaba, Jack Ma, has this, uh, this thing he was saying, you know, he says, you know, a crocodile loses to a shark in the ocean, but it beats it every time in the Yangtze River. Right. So he was saying, we are the crocodile, Taobao, and eBay is the shark in the ocean. And if you look at what they've done, you know, back to, to your question of how designers are going to, are going to help us with that. Taobao did a bunch of things that made it better than eBay in China. One thing was, you know, they made it free. They understood that there was a big obstacle. People didn't want to pay. So they made the whole thing free to start with, uh, started to, you know, uh, get revenues in another way later on. But they also did things like um, creating a messaging service because they understood that Chinese people wanted to talk, you know, before doing a deal. Or they did things like uh, having the names of online moderators on the platform. They were uh, chosen after uh, characters in, in popular Chinese Kung Fu novels, right? And they that made the whole process fun, people related to that, etc. So these things, I think they speak about, you know, how you get into the culture of a place. And I think designers are uniquely placed to understand, to kind of get under that, uh, the, the surface of things and really try to get to what creates meaning for people, 
what drives people, what motivates people. And I think that's a great example here of, uh, of what they did, which helped, you know, create this massive business. Designers are going to have a massive role. And that's what we've seen, I think, so far, but they, they're going to continue to have a massive role in uh, understanding how to create value, create businesses, create value for society in general. That's good to hear. It's good to know that I'm going to have a job in the next 10 years. <laughs> yeah, you're well placed. So, um, Nick, do you have anything, any other question you want to ask? Look, I think I'm still interested, I guess, in the, the combination of the exploitation and innovation. I guess from a product management perspective, the way I think about it is that you have innovation first, um, often sparking from invention, but innovation, as you mentioned before, is you know creating value, solving a problem for a customer. But as that idea moves from its innovation stage to implementation and, and growth in the marketplace, it has to also go through an exploitation phase. And I think that's where a lot of organisations see a break point. Either they don't have the innovation to start with or they don't know how to manage the innovation into the mm. main business. Do you have any suggestions on how the organisations you've worked with have, have effectively managed that transition from innovation to the exploitation and then back again so they can keep repeating the process? Yes, I think it's a very good point. Uh, my example is, uh, is if you look at Tesla right now, right? I, I mean, yeah. Tesla we've all you know come to kind of see as the poster child of innovation amazing you know you know what they've created a whole new system etc but now they're if you read the news on Tesla these days and, and it's, not, it's not the first time but they now have an exploitation problem they have to deliver they have to manufacture they have to, to you know deliver on all of these orders after they've created a new product and even sold the product. So it, it just speaks to the fact that there are two different skills and skill sets. And, you know, I think you need to understand the fact that there are two different skill sets and make sure you have those two different skill sets inside the organization and really understanding that, you know, I think you recruit differently for innovation versus exploitation, that your processes look different, that uh, even your, you know, down to your physical space, looks different. So, you know, I'd say just being mindful that these are two different worlds and that you need to also throw a bridge between the two worlds is what's going to make us, I think, you know, successful to navigate these two worlds. Okay, Greg, so we're coming towards the end of this episode and I know there's quite a lot of questions that I didn't get through today um, and a lot of people on the Slack channel were asking me to ask some questions. But there is an opportunity for them to get to meet you. I know you mentioned earlier before we started recording that you're going to be coming to Australia at the end of this year to do a masterclass, a strategizer masterclass. So how can people find out more about that and um, where is it going to be on, what dates and so forth? Yeah, so in October we're doing a uh, strategizer masterclass. So it's two days focused on teaching the tools, so value proposition, canvas, business model canvas, and the whole thing of what we talked about. So basically this whole thing of how you use these tools and the methodology around conducting innovation processes inside companies. Uh, we did the first one last year, last October, and lots of enthusiasm, so we're coming back in October for that. Great stuff. So if they just go to strategizer.com, they can sign yeah, up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, great stuff, Greg. So we're just going to move into the last section um, with the three questions from hell. So I'm going to ask you the first question. What is the one professional skill that you wish you were better at? Yeah. Um, 
you know, I'll say a cheeky one, but, you know, sitting at my desk and getting work done. And by that, I mean, you know, I don't feel so well because I feel like I'm not the only one suffering from this, but everyone I know suffers a bit from procrastination when you have to start doing something, you know, important. So actually doing it every day, I feel is a massively important skill that I'd like to to do better, you know, just sitting at your desk and, and doing doing your, your craft every day. <laughs> Don't worry about that, Greg. I think procrastination, a little bit of it is healthy. So just the next question is, what is the one professional thing that you wish you were able to banish? This whole world of design thinking has come up and become very popular, which has been largely very great. But I feel there's a risk of, you know, using this whole thing as a technique that is detached from the kind of the core principles and the value and the philosophy and, you know, the meaning of it. And I, you know, it becomes a bit of a commodity and people are using the tools, everybody's doing design thinking, but I actually feel it's a very deep thing, you know, it's, it's a deep uh, practice. And if you're going to lose the connection, you just use it as a tool or as a technique, then you lose the connection with why it's so important. So I, I'd love to banish just the use of tools without understanding why they're so important and the whole process that comes with it. Myself and Nick are nodding our heads. We're like we're like those nodding okay. dogs at the back of a car. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, we've just got one last question. And what is the message you'd give to emerging design talent for the future? Yeah, so I, I think it's a bit related to what I just said. I would say, you know, that whatever you do, you have to... I think it's important to develop a, a kind of an intimate relationship with what you're doing. So not using, again, the tools because they're there and thinking that the job is done. I think the best people, creative people, innovators, designers out there, they have a very intimate relationship with their practice, with their craft, and with the object that they're working with. And that takes a lot of immersion, a lot of like curiosity, a lot of, a lot of practice itself and reflection. And so I think understanding, you know, you as a designer, understanding that how you fit with this whole world, what is your, you know, unique point of view, skill set, etc. Understanding your place in this whole world is extremely important for you to create the kind of value that we expect from, uh, or that we get delighted by. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Greg, thank you so much for your time. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com where you can request to join the Slack channel and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time.